we tell stories that engage, inspire, and have a lasting impact? How do we turn thoughts and ideas into effective and authentic storytelling? How can we use stories to make a difference in our work, lives, and communities? I'm your host, Camille DePutter, and together we'll explore what it means to tell stories with heart. Welcome to another episode of the Storytelling with Heart podcast. I am your host, Camille DePutter, and with me today is Chandra Crawford. Chandra is a high-season speaker, an Olympic gold medalist, and three-times Olympian in cross-country skiing, born and raised in Canmore, Alberta, Canada. Chandra grew up running around the mountains, being inspired by the major sporting events that came to town, and working in the tourism industry, cleaning in various hotels and assembling bikes at Altitude Sports. After retiring from ski racing in 2014, she completed her MBA at the University of Calgary, got married, continued to lead the national charity she founded in 2005, Fast and Female, and had four kids. Chandra's purpose is to share her high vibe energy and growth mindset to help people turn their challenges into opportunities. Her speaking topics include beating burnout, excellence, resiliency, positive rivalries, and mental health, as well as custom topics. With great vulnerability and humility, Chandra shares not only stories of her Olympic win in 2006, but also the lows of her life, such as the loss of her younger brother to addictions and her own struggles with eating disorders. When she's not crafting transformational messages for clients or leading courses with her business, North Star Collective, Chandra can be found adventuring on mountain trails with her husband, Jared, their kids, and their barky golden retriever named Stella. Welcome, Chandra. So great to have you here today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's wonderful to be here. So your your bio contains so much. It contains, you know, massive highs in your life and significant lows, which in and of itself, I, I already appreciate that you're willing to kind of share these, these inner details in your bio. It doesn't just read like a resume. It reads like a human being. Oh, I appreciate that. That's um, a 10-year journey. I first started wanting to speak vulnerably about difficult things 10 years ago then I probably actually started doing it seven years ago Mm -hmm. and every passing year it's more fruitful and meaningful and brings me closer to people and greater connection to myself and others so thank you it's a a wonderful um, process well, that, I mean, that opens it right up to the kind of stuff that I would love to to get into today. Um, maybe we just start with like a little bit of lay of the land of what your life is like today and what are you up to these days? Um, I've been retired from ski racing for 10 years now and been really into having kids and just absolutely love kids. I've always wanted kids since I was a kid. And uh, my partner, Jared, and I are having a ball with these little buddies. They're seven, five, four, and two. And so that's the main thing that I spend uh, 80% of my time and life force energy on. And Mm -hmm. that I also love getting to work a little bit really makes a huge difference in my mental health. And just spending a couple hours on my keynote speaking or my courses, it's easier than parenting. It's like typey, typey, talky, talky. It's so fun. <laughs> Talking to adults, what we're doing right now is is work. And work is so enjoyable for me. I have a really good mix. 
really great mix in that I'm able to do my passion for my work, do it in a very small amount, dial it up and down as the season um, requires. Or if people are sick, kids are sick, then I can just work less and it's fine. You, you mentioned some of your, um, your courses that you're, the courses that you're running these days. And I know uh, burnout is is one of them. And I wasn't going to leap into this right off the bat, but I, I feel like as you kind of talked about finding your schedule and so on, and and sounds like something that's that's busy right now, but that is also oriented around what's important and, for, and fulfilling to you. Where did the, the whole um, burnout course and focus come from? I feel that across my speaking, my personal life, the lows I've struggled through with mental health and self-image and the highs of just pure hardcore excellence have a unifying theme, a unifying villain actually. And and it's this inner critic um, villain that really erodes my potential, stands between me and everything I love and care about. And when I think about this life's stage I'm in of young kids and career and the demands on uh, parents these days, it's just feels like the burnout, um, anti-burnout or what preventing burnout is really a big um, draw for me and the way it relates to combating inner critic. But also for two years, I was too nervous to do my course. I did a confidence course and then for two years lacked the confidence to do it. So many of the things in your past podcasts resonated of like, who am I to speak and what do I have to say? And um, that stuck feeling that um, you mentioned in a previous podcast. So then finally someone got through to me of like, if you have something to offer people and you don't, and you want to do it and you feel told to do it and you don't do it, who is that helping? Mm-hmm. Um, so that got me back into the mindset to go and do a course again, because I love speaking, storytelling, psychology, helping people in a course setting. I can do that every week, Mm -hmm. putting together something that will prevent burnout, provide accountability, community, and um, speaking about kind of employment setups, like a teamwork setting. So I've got five experts on the team. uh, It's not just me. Whereas my keynote speaking is just me selling me. And it's so nice to mix it up with I'm also part of a team of this other business that um, fills in when I don't feel like marketing myself that day. (laughs) Yeah, nice. And so the the inner critic that you mentioned, what has that journey been like for you? Where does where did the inner critic show up and and influence your life? High performance sport is so so much mental game, and it was my advantage in ski racing that I had so much access to psychology and was really spongy about it. I really loved using performance psychology. I was less physically uh, capable than the other Nordic ski athletes. I had kind of more fast twitch muscle fibers and I would get tired really easily. And luckily there were events that worked for me, but really I felt like summoning more game day performance. I wouldn't be the best in training, but I could really perform on race days. And that was so exciting to use psychology. So I have like, I don't know, multi-million dollar psychology in here from <laughs> all the experts. I went to three Olympics. I had um, eight different coaches, five different sports psychologists, clinical psychologists as well at one point. And um, the inner critic journey was so important 
incredibly important for performance. And the way the ski team was trained to deal with it would be like, recognize it, number one. Then um, start to notice the trends of what your inner critic is saying. And then we would prepare and script a rebuttal. So in a ski race, usually I would say, these girls are way faster than me, way stronger than me. I don't have the right muscle fibers, <laughs> like whatever it is. Some kind of reason, excuse um, of why this is too hard, even and then prepare a rebuttal. Like, just keep going one stride at a time or a, a process focus. And that was so helpful. I could dig so much deeper when I learned to say this mantra, breathe, refocus, and get into talking back to the inner critic. Then later in life, I went to another Olympics, but this time from a real unstable position of having a mental health um crisis for me really and having an eating disorder for a year. And it was really that inner critic that made my life so much worse because I had, you know, an acute phase. I had had a breakup with my teammate. We'd been together 10 years. It was very public and upsetting. And the role I played in it, I felt very ashamed of. And then I was so mean to myself for one year. I was just shaming myself more and more and more self-loathing and kind of pouring it on until I was bulimic and overtraining and partying and just in real state. One year after the breakup, I was worse than the when it had happened from this totally maladaptive coping. I was riding a motorcycle and it got impounded. Thank goodness. Like what a wild time. Um, such a nice mom of four now. It's like, what was happening? <laughs> and I do a you know, approve of going wild, um, but not as like running away from feelings. Right. So that inner critic um, ride was all just awful. So mm -hmm. finally I um, stopped ski racing. I got on antidepressants, clinical psychology, and ended up um, meeting my husband and falling in love and getting a lot of uh, good things going in my life. But I still had to work with the inner critic to go to the Olympics again. And it, it was really powerful. So much my inner peace now comes from the journey I went through with such a strong inner critic, kind of when it went super into overdrive. Um, that was just awful. So then I'm aware of it on a small scale, standing between mean performance in anything in life, on a large scale, eroding my health, and seeing how the inner critic is also the voice of society and expectations and um, patriarchy and misogyny and racism and all of the um, really destructive forces, like where are these kind of inner things coming from that are causing especially women to be more susceptible to burnout and achievers to be more susceptible. So I feel a lot of passion for inner critic um, attack. We're going to get this thing and make our lives better. When, when you, you talked about the inner critic showing up at that kind of key juncture in your life, when you were still uh, training and, and performing, had it been there previously? Like, was that something that you uh, dealt with as a young person as well? Or was it something that just surfaced later on in life for you? That's such an interesting question. Inner critic was always there and perfectionism in a lot of ways, like to really perform an elite sport, there's a drive there. But a lot of my drive was really positive, like cheering for myself and curious if I could do better. It, it was 
pretty fantastic. And that really was how I um, was wired to achieve in, in a, yeah, a positive and curious space. So then when I had harder times um, and it really surged on me, that was, yeah, I think a lot harder. But I would say today, you know, in parenthood, like I'll do, try to do what, um, let's say, Dr. Becky from Good Inside is like this giant parenting guru. I'll try to do what she says. I'll do one-on-one time with my kid. Then my kid will be crying and telling me she hates me. And I'll be like, wow, I am terrible at this. And then I'll go to work and try to, and I have no keynote speeches. And I'm like, wow, I am just awful at keynote speeches as well. And that's just a normal day to really be aware of it or body image, or um, I really want to post more to the internet and promote my course and promote my talks, but posting to the internet is such a doozy, Um, you know, just, just, just incredibly challenging stuff. So I'd say inner critic's not going away anytime soon. And it's a opportunity and a challenge for me, because if I can recognize it, apply the self-compassion, my word for the year is love, love beats fear. And then maybe, just maybe, you'll see me post something to Instagram and you'll be like, you go, girl, you did that. <laughs> You're so brave. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. And, and I think it's um, it's helpful for other people to hear. And, and it's always, like, it's so profoundly kind of humanizing to think about the what you've done in your lifetime. And, like, it feels so fearless, you know, it feels so... Um, so brave and then to to hear someone like you say oh yeah well posting on social media scares the crap out of me too it's like okay we're we have commonality among us in that and this is something i find with many high performers as well it doesn't matter how successful the person is vulnerability is vulnerability Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely and uneven confidence lumpy confidence like i'm confident in some things and not in others and um, try to, yeah, try to be cognizant of that. And what a time with just the internet, um, making our lives, yeah, so much more confusing <laughs> in what everyone's presenting and how that makes us feel and what we're ingesting and how the algorithms are working on us as well. Um, and yet also a great tool for business and good messages too. So, mm-hmm. yep, I appreciate that. And everything that I want stands on the other side of getting through this, of being successful, of being a parent um, who can, you know, stand on my own two feet and get through these storms with the kids every day, but also to um, to not be totally burnt out and overwhelmed is a big goal. Um, a month ago, whenever I said the word overwhelm, I would just start crying. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to do that course. <laughs> I'm going to create that course. I'm going to pull in those experts. Um, and I was on a girls weekend for my birthday. And by the end of it, I could almost say the word overwhelm without crying. And I just kind of talked it out. But everything stands on the other side of like this inner voice saying, I have to do everything. Like it's my kid's birthday on Friday. Am I going to bake something? I hate baking. She wants a bite cake. Does that even exist? Sure. Can, can I go buy this at DQ? <laughs> like, um, but, but part of me is still deliberating whether or not I should bake it. I, I've never baked a single cake. I don't like to bake ever. <laughs> so right. really, but there's still going to be that voice of like, are you going to do it? Or, um, to, uh, people on the I- internet, it'd be funny to know that 
maybe I'm really exercising a lot for my mental health. So I'm in really good shape. And maybe that's going to make someone feel bad. But I find putting on makeup super hard. And when I look at the internet, I'm like, oh, everyone's makeup looks so good. And like, what is makeup? It's a tool of oppression. Ah, I hate everything. <laughs> and then I wordsmith a caption for three hours and don't post it. <laughs> yeah. wow. Yes. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. It's very, it's, that's so relatable. I really hear that. I think there's an important differentiation. I don't, I don't want to spend the whole time talking about the inner critic stuff because there's so many, so many other things that I want to explore with you. But I think there's an important differentiation between that striving voice that you kind of alluded to earlier and the, the mental strategies or the thoughts or the whatever you might call it that helped you really strive for and achieve excellence at an elite level, as opposed to the kind of inner critic that you just described there that's maybe more like just preventing us from moving forward, keeping us stuck. What do you see as the difference between those two things? That's really the antidote, I think, is to dial up that other voice. And for as long as I've been speaking about my Olympic win, which is in 2006, I've been using the image from cartoons of my youth, where a cartoon character would have a devil on one shoulder and an angel on the other. And it's just still works for me today to think of the inner critic separate from the inner best friend, the inner cheerleader. And one of my favorite coaches, Mike Cavalier, when I was 21, said all day, every day, you can be your own best friend or your own worst enemy. And really taught that option. So then it's um, today, it's really about self-compassion for me. Have you had any guests mentioning Kristen Neff? Um, or yeah, seen at, at least before? one has mentioned her. Yeah. She's, she's this, is an, this is a gem. This is an under, yeah, undervalued skill. And when I really got into it, because I am hardcore about success, it was when I saw the studies they had done about how much better people had done on a self-compassion training. So they took um, kids at Dartmouth, Ivy League school, and gave them an incredibly hard vocabulary test. Then they had a control group, a positive pump-up group, like, you're great, you're at Dartmouth, you must be awesome, but kind of a fixed mindset. And then they had the self-compassion training, which teaches us to speak kindly to ourselves. If you really want to nail it, say, speak to yourself like you're like a wounded little animal, like, it's okay, Chandra, you're going to get those pants on the four-year-old. We don't have to go to school on time. You're doing great. It's very hard putting pants on a four-year-old. I see you. I see you struggling um, and speaking kindly to ourselves. And I actually have used this so much um, and then really got into the Kristen Neff thing. So they gave these kids another chance to study to retake the hard test. The kids who had self-compassion training studied twice as long and got way better grades. And that's when I was like, sign me up. Like I am hardcore. I want to win. I can be real tough, but I ultimately I want to succeed. And if I have to speak nicely to myself, like let's do it. So when I speak to audiences who, cause everyone's going to be skeptical and it feels so uncomfortable um, but like, do you want to succeed or not? Just try it for one day. You can go back to being a jerk to yourself the next day. Mm-hmm. Uh, so self-compassion is really that antidote, really that other voice other than inner critic, really that angel on the other shoulder or that inner best friend that's like, break it down. You got this inner cheerleader. And I used it in my MBA as well. My MBA degree was really tough. I did an executive MBA program, but without doing an undergrad. 
Oh, and wow. they used my word experience. But like, I get to exaggerate and say I could barely read. <laughs> well, I <laughs> certainly could all of us. And in the MBAs, I was like, oh, business is all about relationships. No, business is about math. The MBA, um, yeah, 80% math. <laughs> so funny. So uh, I went, like, I couldn't multiply two numbers in Excel, just sitting at my desk crying um, to getting, getting, you know, this wonderful experience of digging deep, but I had to use the self-compassion and start to speak kindly to myself instead of like, you're an idiot. Why are you even doing this? I had to say, it's okay, Chandra, what's in cell like D12? It's not going to hurt you. It's just an Excel spreadsheet. There's a number in there. Let's go look at that number. Let's see the formula. It's going to be okay. <laughs> really, wow. really helped me get through it. Speaking so kindly to myself um, was, was the way to go because I already felt like an idiot and felt bad and that wasn't really getting me anywhere. It was kind of you know opening my amygdala and fear center and making it harder to learn. Yeah. I mean, it's a testament to what we can do if we really just kind of slow down in it. Being self-compassionate, it's kind of this broad term, term that you hear a lot, but to actually think about using that as a strategy moment to moment to just help yourself keep going and do those things that intimidate you or scare you or that you find deeply challenging to just continue to move forward. I know that a lot of Olympic athletes and other people, after they have a significant win or achievement, can feel a little bit lost at sea. What what was that journey like for you then taking your MBA and, and moving forward? Um, that that was hard for sure. The transition out of sports is hard for everyone. Mine was a little smoother because I had a big purpose. I had always been running this charity for keeping girls in sports. I started it before my first Olympics when I was 21 years old. And that really balanced out my identity for so much of my life. Um, having a big why and, and running the charity, it was so, it's still so compelling. Gender equity in sport has been my life's work. And it's um, really helped me through the transition because I had a purpose. I had stuff to do and I was fortunate to have succeeded and I was grateful for it. And I was really excited to get on to the next chapter. I'd always wanted to go to university, but um, just ski raced. And I was for a while thinking, oh, I'd go to university next year and next year. And then finally, when I was 19 or so, I stopped saying that because I'm clearly not going to any kind of school. I'm just serious. So it was a real treat, a real um, gift to get to go to school, even though it was hard and and fall in love and get married and have kids. It's really a tricky transition for athletes because we have to figure out our career. And then for a late maturation sport, like cross-country skiing, if to, yeah, probably have to have those kids and, and figure out a career. Like the motherhood transition is like insane. And then, you know, so many athletes, like we just have like a high school education and maybe haven't succeeded on the Olympic stage and like, it is rough. Um, but I was, a, yeah, in a great spot with the, the growth mindset and some of these self-compassion tools. And I just kept growing and growing and growing. I'd had such a huge meltdown before my last Olympics that I'd already kind of shed a lot of my identity through that um, burnout phase and all that, that psychology and all that meditation. And I read some good books like Eckhart Tolle. And so that was probably 
set me up for a better transition out of sport because I was like, well, I'm not my results. I'm not how I look. I'm like an energy. I'm a community member. I'm a family member. And uh, the identity thing of like, that's like me to try new hard things uh, is really valuable. Mm-hmm. How, so how old were you when you were going through that really difficult uh, year? It sounds like year or two. My, my real meltdown was when I was 29, just heading into my third Olympics and everything fell apart. And then eventually I was skiing slower than even all the young girls and might not even make it to the Olympics, like go from being the Olympic champion and the you know leader on the team for so long to like the 17 year olds are zooming by me now and it's cross-country skiing. So you can actually see them passing you, <laughs> but um, it was, uh, it was so wild. I was like in this beautiful place in Austria called Seefeld and uh, it was January, late January and just sun was shining and just like European food and, and decor in this like cute hotel called the Toblackerhof. But I just could not even leave my hotel room. I was so paralyzed by low confidence and, the depression and anxiety and the stress I'd been under increasing. I just couldn't even leave my hotel room. And I finally had to stop ski racing and go home, um, which was really wonderful. And take some time, take some time to, to rest and think, should I keep doing this? Uh Should I keep ski racing? Even It's just cratered my health. Uh, I kind of thought, Oh, I don't want to watch the 2014 Olympics on TV. And no, I didn't try, but I don't want to get sicker either. Right. Right. Like this isn't worth it um, for my health. Plus, is it even possible now that I'm skiing slowly because an eating disorder and all that um, partying and stress really does a number on the body eventually. Mm. But I decided to make it my own journey to health. And I would use the Olympics as a tool to, um, to become healthy again. And I didn't want to watch it on TV knowing I didn't try, but I could redefine what success was and it would be that I would become healthy. And then the last few months before the Olympic trials to try and make the team and go to the games and ski race once again with snow flying off of my skis and my ponytail flapping in there and my muscles just burning with the Olympic uh, rings on my chest on the on the race bib and the announcers and the crowds and just like give it my all and I wanted to do it again um, so I made it my journey to health and I made it to the games I got to go there and then I just had this inner peace that was so profound I made one more hard choice which was should I go off the antidepressant in case there's a micro performance boost right but also what's keeping me well And uh, to go back into the ski racing environment without this doesn't make sense either. But I just decided with my support network and I was just going to double down on meditation and love and psychology. And I was so proud just to make it there. I could like give a high five to the wall. I was like Mm -hmm. bulletproof. And I got to do my ski race in, um, on these mountaintops, the 2014 Olympics were in Russia. And it was just amazing feeling. I got 42nd place. I skied pretty slow, um, but it was everything I had. And I just was so proud of my achievement. It felt like I'd won a thousand gold medals. Like I just felt radiant. And I've kept that feeling to this day in so many ways. 
And winning a real gold medal was great, but winning a thousand inner like hard work journey gold medals was so much more valuable to me for the rest of my life, like who I who I am. So that's kind of how they how the uh ski racer can beat the inner critic and be well. Yeah, that's an incredible story. Thanks for sharing that. And I it really does speak to how profound it can feel when you know you've worked through your like you, your inner demons, like that that kind of inner battle and a battle for ultimately self-love and your own care and your own um your own happiness and to really like to really get there internally and then and then see what you can do out of it. I mean, I've had similar moments in in my own life that have not, you know, it's not been at that level of the Olympic stage, but can feel so incredibly gratifying and kind of grounding at the same time. Um, It's really beautiful to hear you tell that story. Thank you. And you're putting yourself out there and you're doing your podcast and your newsletter and your books and you're just like absolutely doing it. What kinds of things get you most, um, feel most rewarding to you? I think uh, particularly at times when I did things that I thought I could never do. um, And I I think especially for me earlier, the physical things that I did, because I, I never saw myself as, as athletic. I grew up with a heart condition and and having a a strong sense of what I couldn't do in my life. Um, And then I too also came through, um, burnout and real significant mental health battles of depression, anxiety, PTSD, and stuff that really brought me to my knees coming through that the other side. And also, as you were saying, like lo- developing love for myself, choosing to get healthy and build my lifestyle around what I needed for myself. And then getting to see myself climbing mountains or, you know, rock climbing outdoors or running races and and stuff like those moments were, were cool because of the activity itself. Like it's awesome. But that feeling of, oh, I got here and I got to where I really wanted to be and, and like a sense of, of potential within was really the part that was so, um, so powerful. Wow. That's neat. Did you find the things that it took, the tools and journey? Glad I overused the word journey. Sorry. You're the writer. Tell me some other words. I said process earlier. Okay. So the tools that it took to get from below like the line of wellness to the line of wellness and then to like achieving, were they the same for you? Or was it like, okay, now I'm well and I have this new approach to go after life? Or was it similar, kind of linear? I think it's, it's been, um, I think in a way it's been all the same because it's finding out what, what works for me and what I need in my life. And so part of that was just the act itself of developing self-knowledge and, and, and cultivating self love and, and kindness and, and appreciation. And so, I actually just recently was cleaning some stuff out, doing some editing. And I've, I've been journaling my practically my whole life. And so an unfortunate outcome of that is that I want to keep them all and I have boxes of them. But one nice thing about that is that, um, from 
time to time for whatever reason, if I do want to go back and reference a point in time in my life, I have a record of it. But so I was, I was kind of sorting some through, through some things and, and doing kind of a high level look at some journals I'd kept over the past, you know, 10 years ish, some a little bit further back, but I could just see even within those journals, how much I was doing to really observe and take notice of what worked for me and what helped me in my life and also really actively cultivating a, a you know a self-love and so i've had especially the the darkest times of my life but as a continual practice harnessed a, a whole bunch of stuff you know i have a team i have my fitness coaches and a therapist that i've worked with for many years and my practice of journaling and the practice of physical activity and getting out outside and lots of different different things but i could see how you know they helped me in every in every area of my life but i think even just realizing that oh yes i am a person that needs maintenance and care and other people to help me with and practices and stuff was in itself a big shift for me oh wow just allowing yourself to access that yeah you don't have to do this completely alone and it's actually impossible. That's yeah. And that it's also not going to come from just muscling through, like just being better at work or working harder or, you know, like it, it has to, you have to really be willing to be like, oh no, I, I matter and I'm going to spend time and uh, there's going to be attendance to this. Mm-hmm. I matter really is a big, oof, big concept. And it really, it really is part of the burnout course feeling too of like, we're all walking around, like we just don't matter. And we just have to serve and grind. And that book um, that came out last year, I think rest is resistance. Huh. Like that concept that if our units of time are meant for productivity and we're just like um, little capitalism production engines, like, that's why we're in so much pain. Like we have to really, yeah, step back and look at that. And, and it's so great right now. There's so much um, great yeah, thought leadership and speaking, um, speaking up about a new mental model. And I think I'd be still pretty lost without some of the new mental models that are available to us. So like I matter. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a, I love the message of that, of that book too. So speaking of storytelling then, and and you had mentioned earlier at the beginning of the conversation that roughly 10 years ago, you said you wanted to get, you know, a bit more vulnerable, start telling more of your story. Um, And now you're, you, you're out there giving keynote speeches and uh, how, what has that been like going from, like, what was it that you really wanted to do, wanted to express and how is that transpiring now? It's more of a why, like, why do I do, if, if, if do vulner, vulnerability is a phrase, it's because I want to make a difference and I care about my audiences so deeply and I love psychology so much. And especially with Fast and Female, which is encouraging girls age 8 to 18 through these really rough patches in our lives to find strength in sports and uh, psychologist that we work with at Fast and Female told me to take it easy on the gold medal story and please talk about your struggles. And it's uh, it was 
so uncomfortable and it still is. It's so much fun jumping around on the stage and talking about winning the gold medal. So the first um, time I wanted to do it, I had a TEDx talk in Canmore and I was like, I'm going to do it. And then just chickened right out and told my old story about winning the gold medal. It's just, it's just a great, great That's ride. That's so fascinating. So you, so did you had another speech, did you have another speech written or what was it going into this moment? Um, yeah, I had written it. And then in the morning of, I was like, no, this is not going to work. And then I got chosen to do a speaking workshop with the other athletes. And so I decided to talk about, um, my, uh, family's addictions with alcohol and my eating disorder issues. So when I was 29 and had that big meltdown, I was bulimic for a year. But when I told the story, I told it with a grin, like a weird grin on my face. I was like, I don't don't even know what to do with my face. Um, someone who I've hired to run my burnout program with me told me some of her tough stories yesterday and she was like laughing and she's like, I don't know why I'm laughing. I'm like, I know, I know it's just, you don't know what to do. So then I had to, um, get better at like making my, how my face should look when I tell the stories of having an eating disorder and then try not to like, I wince a lot still, I feel like, and feel like, um, some shame that it happened to me and like. And then on the stage, though, I was really nervous to tell my story, but I was ready to do it to um, a travel Alberta audience of 150 people. And they, uh, I said, this was the worst time that happened in my entire life. And I had an eating disorder for a year because of a breakup. And then every single person laughed. The whole place erupted because of a breakup. Everyone's had a breakup. Everyone's been or seen a breakup person. And I was like a quintessential um, person to tear on a breakup. So that was so interesting. So now I typically like preface it with that story because I found that really interesting. Mm. And, uh, and then, um, just just still working on how I talk about my brother passing away from addictions. And he was just shy of his 31st birthday, my little brother, Jordan. But I like to dedicate the start of my talk to him and to facing, facing our demons, facing our challenges, facing our emotions, facing our trauma in any small amount we can and finding tools to do that. And we're here today in this room to listen to some of my stories. You're going to go on your own um, journey with with your own ability to face things. But I really wish that for all of us. And I wish that wish for all of us to defeat the things that hold us back from facing our true reality. And then at the end, I circle back to Jordan and I wish he could be here. I wish he could have accessed more help. I wish he um, had the ability to to not, um, you know, pass away in a state of despair. Uh, but we can all do something today. We walk out of here to make our lives um, as as real and wonderful as they can be by facing our demons. And that's been really cool because people come up to me after and give me a hug. Someone um, said they just went out in the hallway after my talk and phoned their spouse and said, we need to talk. And that was all they relayed back to me, but you know, all the subtext of that, that it was that they were going to be in some small way facing an addiction. Any amount is amazing. So mm-hmm. that's super rewarding. 
So obviously when you were first starting telling some of these stories, it felt so uncomfortable. You didn't want to do it. You had that experience of a TEDx where you chickened out, as you say. So it really took some work to to get you to a place of, of talking about this and then and being able to then tell it with some comfort. How do you like I'm just curious about how has that changed for you? Has it just come with practice and familiarity? Are you able now to tell the stories in a way where you are you are still feeling it, you're still connected to the material, but it feels less scary? Uh it still feels scary and still feels like a challenge for me to not ramble and procrastinate even a little bit on the stage. Mm. Um, uh, so I have a, I have a talk next week for Deloitte and I'm going to, I just try more and more to make that the hook and to practice um, standing on my feet, feeling the ground and saying the hard story. Like I practiced first, <laughs> which is another just procrastination technique, eat the frog. If you're going to eat a bunch of frogs, eat the grossest, slimiest one first. <laughs> it's a really, it's a really funny little productivity concept, but it works for me. <laughs> and uh, so I try to do it um, first. Now people get still give feedback. Uh, I don't think it's super smooth yet. And, and that's real too, though, because I look pretty real up there. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it sounds like you're saying too, that you have seen when you, because people come and give you a hug, because people tell you, oh, I did something different immediately on the back of this. It sounds like you do see the impact of it though. Like, do you feel that when you're willing to go up there and be real and be vulnerable and and talk about these things that are still hard to talk about, that it makes for for better connection and and better impact, even in sort of a corporate type setting, like you mentioned places like Deloitte. Yeah, it's better for me. I get to be real. I get to access um, so much of uh, addictions in in a family system involves like the heavy layers of denial and pretending and shame. And so I I actually feel like it's like fighting back against that too. And um, you know, nurturing past me who didn't have a chance to to be open about the the tough stuff in our family. So yeah, I get a lot out of it. Helping people, um, helping myself. I think to storytelling, I loved keynote speaking. It's like, okay, uh, what's the most important thing in your entire life? And could you tell it to some people and it might make a difference in their life? Okay, go. Like, it's super cool to mine a life. It's not your own eulogy, but it's like, what do you got? Like, what's been the takeaways of your 40 years? What do you have to show for these things you've been doing? So um, I just love that experience of like, and then just noticing like what we were talking about, about how high performance and just overcoming hardship is pretty similar stuff. So (laughs) Like you're a, you're a super healthy achiever in the audience. You want to win more. You're in the depths of despair. You want to feel better. Like we're talking about the panacea of <laughs> self-compassion. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's, these are relatable things. They're relatable human things. And people might bring you in because you've got the gold medal, but they really learn from you. It sounds like because of... Uh, because you're a human being and what you've had to work through in your life. 
yeah, that is what it's feeling like. It's feeling, um, feeling great, feeling more broad, feeling more relatable. Um, and it's really up to them to apply it in some way or people like none of us hear messages we're not ready for. And, um, I'm always curious because there's so much information on parenting right now and it's, it feels like a lot of pressure and there's so many great books. And so people will often say like, well, there's no book on how to be a parent. Like there are actually many tens of thousands of books. Or if you share a book with someone and it's fun, whether it's a parenting book or not, it could be fiction. And what your friend, colleague responds, it's so interesting of like, well, I didn't like that or I didn't like that. And like, okay, interesting. There's one one parenting book, Shafali Tabari, that says like, our chance to grow is being a parent. So when you're in your situations, just look inward. Like your kid's awesome. Look inward. What's going on for you? What's coming up for you? Why is this so upsetting for you? Like you can grow and grow and grow and reparent and reparent yourself. But some people, if I give them that book, they're like, no, no. I'm like, okay. Or my sister's like, I am absolutely never looking inward. Please stop saying that. <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, it's it's a great point, right? Like, and you can you can get out there, and also you can give the talk of your lifetime. You can you can express yourself brilliantly, but not everyone's going to like it. Not everyone's going to relate to it. And uh, just as we're always, you know, you can read a book. And then and find nothing. I've had books that I've had on my shelf sometimes for years because I didn't find there to be much in it. And then pick it up years later only for it to change my life. Wow. So you just, we don't, we don't always know, right? But I think it's a great reminder for folks who are out there also communicating, telling stories, trying to do something that's impactful because you're also not going to be able to, uh, you know, have a... a a dramatic impact or a positive one necessarily on every single person that you're out there talking to. Yep. It's our craft and our art and we're doing our best and putting it out there. And then it's up to the audience. The next phase. I'm curious about in the storytelling coaching and work and you're doing to help all of us um, do this better. Like I'm really trying to apply the time tested principles. Like I'm trying really hard today to do, um, to name a specific villain. And I'm trying hard to like make the transformation of my course or my keynote internal, external, and philosophical. So like the inner problem of overwhelm, the external problem of like my life's a mess and the philosophical problem of like, it's not fair that women have to do everything. Hmm. Um, and trying to use some of that structure, but I feel really stuck on like making the audience the hero because like i'm going to tell you my story i had the olympics i had the eating disorder i had the brother okay i don't still don't totally get how i make you the hero mm-hmm. and i'm in need of guide that's is that a structure worth can you explain that to us <laughs> <laughs> yeah sure I'll, I'll 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 do my best um so I th- to me, what is most important is to be, to go into the arrangement, the act of having the conversation or writing the speech or giving the speech and being able to put your audience 
first. And that doesn't mean that your story is not going to be the center of this. It means that you're clear on who they are and why they're there, why you're here, and what you want them to be able to think or feel or or do differently as a result of this exchange. And when you kind of have that at the first and foremost, like you're going into it, not going, well, I'm here because I want to tell you blah, blah, blah. And I want you to buy blah, blah, blah. But, but more to the point of what that core message or idea is that you want them to impart in the case of your audience with your course that you're referring to, you know, it sounds like that's pretty clear. Like you probably want them to be able to feel that they matter and that they matter enough to make decisions about their their time and maybe some tough calls in their life about how they prioritize themselves and pursue their own care. And so when that's at the the sort of you you know that, then you can go ahead and you can tell those stories in service of that goal. And people will give you templates and things, oh, you know, hero villain, etc. Um, and that's that's fine if it works for you, but I'm actually less picky about, oh, a, a, a story needs to have these exact components. I do use the narrative arc sometimes to kind of try to teach people about uh, how to think of a story. Like your your audience is going on a journey with you, and in that sense, they are they are the hero of their story. But to me, that means, for example, that if they're listening, they're starting at a certain point of understanding where they feel certain things, they think certain things. And as you tell them the story, they're, they're riding with you on those, the ups and downs of that story that you're telling. As you're talking about those big lows in your life of, you know, thinking like, am I going to ever get out of this? Am I going to be stuck in this rut forever? They're with you in that pit. When you talk about moments of maybe of having hope of what changed, of making that decision, like I'm, I, I don't want to be watching the Olympics on TV. I'm going to go after this, but I'm going to go after it for me. We are then feeling this, this rising tension and, and development of, of the plot. And then when you come out the other end and, and finish that story and you tie it back to whatever that message is, they now have come through this, this story arc with you and they're on their way somewhere else too. So it is your story, but you know, and, and in your story, you're the hero because it's yours, but they are kind of their own, their own hero on their own story of discovering and learning and feeling something for themselves. That's what makes them the hero. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. Yes. That's why when I watch Star Wars and I'm like, is Luke going to be able to achieve like that makes sense exactly like he's the the hero in that but through with you as the observer you're also you're also the hero because you're you're going through it and you're you're coming out hopefully on the other end in some way changed and maybe it's inspired you know to take something on you know in your in your own way in your own life slightly differently Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. yeah that's that's t- super helpful. So I don't want to start saying you. You need to do self-compassion. I really don't ever want to say you. <laughs> I feel like that's such an uh, awkward tone <laughs> and like so preachy. <laughs> yeah. And I think a lot of 
a lot of people feel that way too. And I think there's also still so much hesitance around people just telling their own story because it feels like, well, that's not enough. I need to tell people what to do. I need to like provide them with some framework of how to do X, Y, and Z, which can be useful too in the right circumstance. But I think we we un- tend to underestimate how effective it can be to simply show up and be like, well, he- here's me, here's, you know, he- here's what it was like. And let me just share some of the the inner details of that, some of the, the gritty details. It doesn't, you know, all have to be bad or heavy either, but just to be honest. And like that in itself, people can take away a lot from that, just, just on their own. But having said that, I also think it's okay to, to be, um, to be a a teacher. And there are times when we want to say, like, when we do want to say you, um, and there's a way to do that too, where we can speak to, you know, here's what I want you to consider. Here's what you, you know, you might want to think about, or here's the plan that you can put into action rather than saying you, 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 you should do this. You should do that. Yeah, that's, that's true. That's so helpful. Yeah. I want to, I'm here to learn. I'm at this talk. I want to glean something. I'm enjoying the story. It's I'm relating. And then I'm also looking to like, I totally want to make my life better. So right. I'm going to get something out of it and give it a try, especially those, um, yeah, open-minded people or people who are hurting, maybe in a position to try. And that's really helpful advice, though, also. Like, what do you want them to do? And I really, really want them to give self-compassion a try. <laughs> yeah. And you could and you could say that. Like you you saying that to me even right now, like I can see in your face and hear in your in your voice and you've backed it up already with the story and what, and, and some research, you know, like you've sold me on it. I believe you, but I can also just see where you're like, I really want you to do this because you really believe they're going to be better for it. Yeah, that's true. Totally. Yeah. And people, uh, you know, we really, um, respond. I can totally feel how I respond to like, I don't, uh, you know, I don't always just search things on the internet. I ask you, where did you go in Mexico? Did you like it? Should I go there? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, I think it's, there's, it's, a, it's important to bring the humanity and, and with that as well, just the details, like not everything, obviously, but a lot of times just some of these, plain little details that actually make it life as opposed to sort of a top line review, right? Like you could, because you could say, oh, well, um, I went on vacation and I went to Mexico and you should go there. (laughs) It's just, it doesn't, but you're not looking at that, right? Like if you're Googling something too, and you're seeing, should I go there? You're looking at TripAdvisor and you're reading the reviews, the things that people saying, well, here, you know, I went on honeymoon here and it was so romantic and my husband and I, blah, blah, blah. You're, you're looking at those details and those nuances because it's what it brings to life. And we can do that in our, our writing and our storytelling as well. Yeah. Yeah. So cool. So much we can do. Yeah. Lot, I'm just looking at my notes, self-compassion and love and trying to add more detail on the stories too. 
Um, well, I think just the fact that you're in, you're willing to get into it and engage with the process is really a wonderful thing. And what I'm I'm often trying to encourage people to do most, and it is a process, and it does it does take time. You know, we're never 100 there. The stories and the ideas and how we express them are always evolving. But the the biggest thing is just to be to be in the game with it. The difference between the version of you who before you gave that TEDx talk was like, no, I got to do it by the book. I can't. And the version of you that is like, I'm going to get in here and try to to give something that is really of myself and the honest experience here and the part that I think people can benefit most from. Like that's 90% of it right there. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's so, tr- that's so cool. Yeah. Actually going for it. <laughs> yeah. Getting in the game, learning, messing up, mucking about, trying again. Yeah. That's, then that's pretty awesome in sport too. Just like the chance of success is so small, but, but training every day is so enjoyable. It's so hard and you have to focus 24 hours a day, every single thing you're doing, sleeping, eating, stretching, wearing, talking, can bring you one fraction of a tenth of a second closer to winning or further. Like it's, Hmm. it's amazing. It's so fun um, being like all consumed in that. And when I was a teenager and the older athlete said, it's going to take 10 years of hard work and you probably still won't succeed. And I was like, let's sign up. That sounds great. Um, (laughs) I'm in for this. Um, And that's really appealing about um, speaking too. like, it's not, for the faint of heart. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's, that's really cool. That's a, I, I appreciate that, that metaphor. I mean, I think many things are like that. If you enjoy the process and if you enjoy the kind of the messiness of the process, you're going to get so much more out of it, regardless of where it ultimately takes you. Yeah. I launched a burnout course and get, didn't get any registrants, but it had taken me two years to overreact up and launch a course. And I did it. And I feel so good. I feel so good to be in the game and people are asking me about it and they're like giving me marketing advice and we're going to try some different things. Like that never would have happened if I just continued to, to hide it under the covers and uh, be like, Oh, yes. I better just go. Actually, I can't, I can't launch my course. I, we, we need some uh, goldfish crackers. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, and it, I, I talk to a lot of folks where what the first thing I'm really encouraging them to do is to publish in some way what they write. So whether it's a, out to their newsletter or on their blog or whatever it may be. And ideally something with some sort of accountability. I mean, that's one reason why I really like email newsletters because you, you need to then be able to say like, you're giving me your email. I'm going to do this for you in exchange. It's not just sort of ad hoc wherever maybe people see it or don't on social media. Mm-hmm. And it, it's interesting to me how much resistance comes from that because we want to get it right first. We want to write for ourselves first, make sure it's right. Make sure we've got it. We're in the habit, whatever it is uh, until, okay, now I feel safe and confident to do so and start to, to publish. And, as with as with many things, the you know the the progress actually doesn't really come so much from doing that. It comes from putting it out there, being willing to be vulnerable, taking that risk, 
maybe getting some feedback or reaction, and maybe it is crickets and being able to deal with that and keep going and, and move forward. And that's where we really make progress. Oh, cool. Right on. That's very helpful. Yeah. No, it makes sense for sure. And love seeing everything you're putting out there and the interviews and newsletter and punk rock. And (laughs) (laughs) well, thank you. And I appreciate so much seeing, um, the stuff that you're, you're putting out there as well. And, and, and what you're, you're doing with your speaking, with your courses, with all of it, it's really cool to see in, in your own personal evolution. Thank you to be continued. Absolutely. Thanks, Chandra. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the storytelling with heart podcast. Want to turn your thoughts into leadership and your ideas into words that make a difference. Find me and discover more free resources at www.camilledeputter.com. While you're there, don't forget to subscribe to my email newsletter, where I share stories, free tools, and other storytelling guidance. And never forget, your story matters. Your story matters.